God's grace and peace as we hear his word and meditate on what he has to speak with us today. Amen. Howdy. Howdy. So typically, pastors are supposed to start off with something funny in the sermon, so I figured I would just start off with the funniest thing that I know, uh, my dating life. So, uh, being a single guy, yes, my dating life is quite hilarious. So what I'm going to tell you is the five best or worst, however you want to say them, reasons why dating has not been working out. Number five, someone was flirting with me, and I thought she was attacking me, and turned out I snubbed her instead of asking her out. Reason four, I was told that I am just too nice, and I did not tease the person enough. Who knew, being the nice guy? Number three, turned out I was breaking up with somebody on prom night. Prom night, not quite as bad as breaking up with someone on their birthday, but that's how I met your mother. That's a whole other sitcom. Number two, on the second date, turned out she did not remember having gone out with me on the first date and thought I had tricked her even though I had the exact same pictures on my profile. And number one reason why dating has not worked out, I made it too easy. Never thought that would be the issue, but apparently dating me was way too easy, and apparently I have to make it more difficult, So, which is why Luke is married and I'm not. Ah, see, there you go. Love it. So with that, though, is as I start this off, though, is that oftentimes what we do is that whenever things don't go quite exactly the way that we're hoping, we oftentimes have certain reactions or responses as people, certain ways that we might treat things to try to explain it to ourselves. We want to figure out how things make sense. And so whenever I would tell friends about how dating is going, they might have advice, you know, like, one, oh, this is how you messed up, Jason. This is what you did wrong. This is what you did wrong. And I'm supposed to like, all right, what are all the things I'm not supposed to do on a date? Okay, and then they're like, are you okay? And I'm like, hold on, before I say anything, let me go through my checklist of what I should not and should not do. Okay. And oftentimes we can get caught up in that legalism. Or, Jason, you take it way too seriously. You don't really worry about how everything goes. Everything will be fine in the end. You don't have to worry about it. And yet, still, you kind of want things, you kind of want to do your best, put your best foot forward, and be the best version of yourself when you meet someone. And third, love hurts. It's terrible. Just expect it to be the worst. Dating is miserable. Just, let it, just accept it's going to be terrible. And frankly, I would like to hope that there is something better out there. I don't want to be like the wedding singer over there and singing Love Stinks into a microphone at karaoke. With it, though, is that is something, though, that we oftentimes do throughout our lives. We either try to figure out what rules we've messed up that caused everything to go wrong, or we try to say, well, none of it matters anyway. I'm just not going to worry about it at all. Or even oftentimes is everything's going to be a struggle, and I just need to accept being miserable. And oftentimes we take that into our faith as well. We sometimes take these ideas of how to fix our life and we try to put them onto God and our faith. And what we see is that Paul, in this letter, is trying to communicate some of these ideas of what the people in Colossae need to avoid 
because they're getting distracted from Jesus. They're getting so caught up in what they think they're supposed to be doing that they end up losing sight of Jesus. Now, we're going to have four weeks on the, the book of Colossians. And what we're going to do is we want to hit some major themes about this. So for today, we're going to talk about how we see the heart of God. The idea that his word is actually showing us his heart, not just a bunch of things for us to do. Then we're going to look at the hope of God. How even when things are struggles and what we're going through that we have to push through, there is still hope in Christ Jesus. Then we're going to look at heirs. How it is that we are not just the creation of God, but we are the heirs, the children of God. And that because of that, God has remembered us and shown us mercy. And then, of course, because it, we have to have alliteration as Lutheran pastors, we're going to look at heaven, to all start with H's. And so, therefore, we're going to look at what it is to put our eyes on what's above and not just the things that are down here on earth. Now, the thing is that all of us, we have a tendency to get so caught up in think, what we think we're supposed to do that we sometimes get distracted from what actually matters. And I have to admit, there's a friend of mine I brought uh, Friday for the beer night, uh, with, uh, Damien. And Damien and I, we oftentimes will have a joke every once in a while. We'll say, well, hey, at least we're not playing pool and going to Sonic. And, we're, and people will be like, what in the world are you talking about? Well, that's because several years back, I, I was like, hey, Damien, let's go play pool. He's like, okay, sure. And so we get there, but the problem is, is that I was hung up on a girl. I really was, was wishing that I could date this one girl, and I was messaging her, messaging her, messaging her. And we're playing pool, and every time I finished my turn, I would get on my phone, and I'd be messaging. And, and he's like, he's playing, and then it's my turn. He's like, Jason, it's your time to, to, it's your turn. You need to shoot. I'm like, okay, okay. And so I'd get back to it, and I'd, you know, just try to hit the ball in the pocket, and then I'd go back to, to texting. And after 45 minutes to an hour, I look up and I realize, Damien's gone. I'm like, wait, wait, what just happened? I had been so distracted on my phone that he had just given up, walked across the street to Sonic to get some food, and then called my sister to come over and pick him up. I was there. I was doing what I was supposed to do. I was hitting the ball but my heart, my mind was completely elsewhere, and he just decided to go get some cheddar peppers and a, you know, Sonic drink. So sometimes we end up getting distracted from the point. And that's the thing is that Paul is trying to remind the people of Colossae what the point is. Now, keep in mind historically, okay, this is around 60 AD, so somewhere about 60 to 62 AD, okay? Um, uh, uh, so uh, Luke is always telling me I need to teach him something, so I'm going to teach you something today. I know, right? You have to listen, though. Okay. With that, though, is there were some letters that Paul wrote when he was in prison in Rome. So he wrote Ephesians, Col Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Okay? And what it was is that when Paul had been in Ephesus and he'd preached and led this church for years, there had been people from Colossae who had come and heard him and took the gospel to their city and started the Colossian church. The problem is, though, is that as churches are apt to do, we sometimes get kind of caught in our own heads and we lose sight of what's real. So they came back to Paul while he's in prison and said, Paul, 
we need you to help us here, and we need you to, to get them back on track. So he wrote this letter to say, here are some things that you're going to fall into as traps that you need to avoid. And that's the thing with this, is that we've got three main things that we struggle with. Now, of course, uh, since, you know, I've got a master's degree in theology, I have to try to prove that I'm intelligent. So I'm going to use some four and five syllable words here. Okay, so just to sound smart. So we're going to try to deal with legalism, Gnosticism, and asceticism. That's the, the five syllable word. You know, got to throw that in there. But what these are, are things that we oftentimes fall into as Christians. The legalism, oftentimes we end up seeing that this happened a lot in Judaism, and it ended up becoming a part of the Christian church as well. Imagine that you have a friend that every time you see them, they tell you, you have to hug me. You come in, you walk in, you didn't hug me. I'm very offended, I'm very upset right now, so you have to hug them. And then the next time you get there, you didn't hug me. Come over here and hug me. After a while, do you want to hug the person? It starts to become a chore. Is that when we take something that's supposed to be good and enjoyable, and we turn it into a rule that we have to follow, it becomes frustrating and becomes joyless. And that's oftentimes what we end up seeing that Christians were doing at the time with their faith and with God. All they were doing is saying, we've got more and more and more things you have to follow to prove that you are truly following Jesus. It was like they were adding more to it. Now, a lot of times we can look at those in the, in the letter, and they say, well, they had to celebrate certain festivals, and they had to make sure that they washed certain things, and they had to make sure that they followed certain rules, but the problem is, is that we, as Christians, we can do the same thing a lot of times. We get caught up in, I have to follow it a certain way. So, for example, for some Christians, it's, okay, did you really accept Jesus? Well, I believe in Jesus. Yes, but did you accept him the right way? Did you pray through this? Did you feel the right things? Did you have the right mindset? Did you experience some event where you know at this moment in time God is with you? And you're just like, I don't know. I, I don't know what you're talking about. And after a bit, we can even take belief in Jesus and start nitpicking if you did it the right way. Or there are those who would sometimes think you have to have a certain experience. There has to be something miraculous. There has to be something big and flashy and showy and some emotional welling up within you that if you don't have that experience, how do you really know that God is with you? But what about us here in the Lutheran church? Sometimes we get so caught up in, did you take communion this week? Did you baptize everybody? Did you get them all confirmed? Okay, great. That's all we really worried about. And then we miss out and we lose sight on continuing to grow in our faith. You see, sometimes we can be so worried about, did you get this done, that we don't ask what's actually happening inside of us. Now, there's a second thing, though, is that oftentimes we get this idea 
that the idea of God is really what matters, not really what happens in the everyday life. So, for example, like, I'll be, um, you know, living in a very torturous place that is like hell on earth, otherwise known as Facebook. And when I'm there in this purgatory, oftentimes what will happen is you'll get different little videos. And someone sends you a video. It's somewhere between 30 seconds to two minutes. And this video is supposed to be something that, that, that's a good thought, a good idea. It, maybe it's a commercial that somebody made. I don't know, it's got some Clydesdale horses or something with Budweiser. Or maybe somehow someone did something nice for somebody else and it gets passed along. You know those commercials that someone will show you and they're like, man, that was a really good thought that they passed on. And then you walk out your door and nothing in your life is at all different. You had a nice little two-minute moment of having a nice idea but the rest of your life, none of it shows up. And that's oftentimes what we saw in what would become Gnosticism. It wasn't fully developed at the time yet, but it ended up coming up later, is this idea of whatever is happening spiritually is completely separate from your physical, everyday life. The world right here and now doesn't have anything to do with God. And so oftentimes you'd find that people didn't really care one way or another what their life looked like, just as long as they had a good idea. And then they'd move on from there. But then there was a third thing that people would oftentimes fall into. It was asceticism. And asceticism is this idea that you have to be tortured to really get God. Now, I was a teacher for seven years, so torturing children is something I'm really good at. Okay? I taught math and physics. I was really good at it, okay? But I found it funny that at one point, you know, I mean, when you're a younger teacher, you know, you're still trying to figure out everything, and I'm like, okay, give them more homework, make sure they have more to do. Okay, they don't really seem miserable enough. I probably need to give them a little more homework. And then after a while, I realized that they were actually able to get the homework done and they understood it, and they weren't miserable. And I was like, oh no, what am I doing wrong? But realized that actually I'd become a better teacher, and I actually had a better understanding of what they could handle and how to get them there. But see, sometimes we do that with our faith as well. We somehow think that following God more and more, well, that just means more work, more struggle, like more torture, harder and harder things that have to come up all the time. And somehow, we're equating God with some sort of a universal torturer of some sort. And if we're not miserable in some way, then we may have missed the point. But the difficulty with this is that none of these, the legalism, the Gnosticism, the asceticism, none of them are really getting to the heart of God. In our well, there's an Old Testament reading that we, were, that we had previously where in Leviticus 18 and 19, they start going over some things that people need to do. And they sound very similar to the Ten Commandments, but they're not exactly the same. They're not written exactly the same. Does that mean that there are extra laws for us? No. What it is is that Moses, God himself through Moses, is trying to communicate what his heart is about. There's actually a part in there where it says, when you are gathering the wheat, 
you're gathering the grain, do not go back and glean the, the extras. And what it was is that whenever you would go through a field and you'd get all the wheat and all the grain, chances are you're going to lose a little bit of it. Maybe you dropped it, you didn't catch all of it. It's not, it's not a lot. It's a small percentage. But there'd be a little bit left on the field. Now, if you've got a large field and a whole lot of wheat, are you really going to worry about that teeny tiny amount? Well, no, not really. But who would that matter to? It would matter to the poor and the sojourner who would come along and they'd pick it up because that's all they had. But that was all that they could make their bread with and that little bit meant the difference between starving or making it another day. But sometimes people would go back and say, now get all the rest of it. I, no, do not leave any of it behind. That would take two to three times as much time and effort just to pick up those little bits. But that's what we sometimes do is that we're so worried about, did I get everything I'm supposed to get? That we miss out on the people around us. And that's the thing is that God was trying to say, I'm not asking you to figure out extra rules to follow. I'm asking, do you understand my heart? I want to know, do you care about the people that are there? Even to the point of saying, you know, don't, don't pick every single grape that's out there. If you miss one, don't worry about it. Someone could use it. But even further is then we look at our Luke passage. And in our Luke passage, it talks about the Good Samaritan. And it gets to this idea of, okay, what am I supposed to do? Now, did the man list every commandment that he was ever supposed to do? Well, no. What, is he, what does he do? Well, he's supposed to love God. You're supposed to love your neighbor. He got to the heart of it. But he still felt like he needed something else unpacked there. So Jesus says, okay, let me give you a story. And so what we see with, with, this, with this guy that's on the side of the road is he's beat up and he's dying. But there are some very religious people walking along. And there's a priest that is going along and basically is just like, oh man, I've got so many priestly things I have to do. I have to make sure I'm very focused. Ooh, there's some dying guy over there. Let me make sure I, I stay away from him because he's going to distract me. If he's dead and I touch him, I'm going to have to spend a week getting clean, and I don't want to deal with that, so let's get back to the work at hand. And then there was the Levite. Oh, man, I've got so much stuff to do at the temple. I've got to take care of all these temple things, and oh, there's a dying guy over there. Let me just, ooh, let me, I don't want to get distracted with that dying guy. Let me get over to the temple and get stuff done. And then there's a person that comes from Samaria that is supposed to be so far from God who sees there's a dying guy. Let me grab him. Let me go take care of him. Because we sometimes get so caught up in what we think, it, this will make God happy, this will make God happy, that we sometimes miss out on who he is in his son. Because the question is, if Jesus is here, right here and now, is he worried about whether we polished all the, all the dishes? Is he worried about whether we have everything perfectly in our heads? Is he worried that, did you, did you suffer enough for me? Or is he here saying, I love you, and now come with me into this world and love the rest of the world with me? See, that's the thing about, about Jesus, and that's what Paul is trying to bring us back to, is I need you to get back to who Jesus is, because all these other things will distract you. But Jesus 
is the supreme example and the supreme sacrifice. Jesus is the one who did it, and Jesus is the one that you follow. With that, we don't always have perfect answers. You may say, well, what is the exact right answer to do in this situation? And honestly, there are a lot of pastors who will be happy to tell you exactly what you should do. When in reality, there are a lot of things that we're not sure about, and we also don't know every context you'll ever face. We don't have the answer to every single situation. But what we do know is we have a Savior who sacrificed himself to give us hope and life and forgiveness. So my question to you is, whatever you decide to do, is it going to proclaim a Jesus who sacrificed himself for our sins and gave us hope and forgiveness? Or there may be times where we don't always have the perfect knowledge or the perfect idea. I was asking a question from somebody yesterday where it turned out I had completely forgotten how a verse went and ended up misquoting it and saying something wrong. And they were like, uh, I think you need to go back to the verse over here and showed it to me. And I'm like, oh yeah, I got that completely wrong. Now the thing is though, I was trying to get to something that was a good thing to get to. But that doesn't mean that I always have every thought and every idea perfect. What it is is instead I go back to who Jesus is and what my hope is in him. And I know that when I've messed up and I've gotten it wrong, I can go back and I can say, God, I messed it up. Please forgive me. And what does he say? He says, you're forgiven. Not, oh man, you got to memorize those verses better. No. It's saying you're my child and I love you. And there may be times when I'm like, this is going way too easy. But the thing is that our life in Christ, it's not about trying to prove to God that we've suffered enough. It's not about trying to prove to anybody else that we've earned it in some way. It's coming back to who Jesus is and what he's done because he's the one who had to suffer. He's the one who had to give everything, and he did, and he did it freely. So there will be times when we struggle. There will be times when it's hard. It is. But that's just God saying, I didn't forget you. My son is there with you. My son has also struggled. But you have hope and a future with me. The thing is that as we look at over these few weeks, and Pastor Tyler will be back. He's got better opening jokes than I do, so don't worry about it. It'll be great. He also does a Scottish accent. I can't do that at all. It, it's terrible. It sounds horrible. But with that is that as we're looking at the heart of God, our hope within God, being the heirs of God, and focusing on heaven instead of on earth, is that we keep coming back to who Jesus is and what he has proclaimed, because sometimes we get so caught up in what we think we're supposed to do, but we forget to ask, who is Jesus and what would he call us to do? So as you sit here, and maybe some of you are thinking, yep, I've been doing that. Okay. But I'm not bringing that up to torture you or to leave you there, but to say, even for those times when you got distracted, Jesus is still the one calling you to himself to forgive you, and to refocus you, and that today and always that he changes your life here and now. Not so you can prove anything, 
Not so you can try to make us feel better about it, but because that's who he is and who he's called you to be. So as you go forth, I want you to ask, who has God called you to be in Jesus? And what things can you let go of that distract you from him so that you can embrace him even more closely? Thanks be to God. Let's pray.